So uh, our message from the Bible this morning, we're going to seek to answer one of the most asked questions of the Christmas season. In fact, I think this is the question that people ask most uh, during the Christmas season. And no, it's not, what am I getting for Christmas? Uh, this is a, a question that comes up in a, in a well-known Christmas song. And uh, who thinks they might know what is the question that is on everyone's minds around Christmas time, and they ask it over and over again? <laughs> yeah, which list is Santa putting me on? That's a good question, but, uh, and we are actually going to talk about Santa's naughty and nice list in the sermon a little later, but you're jumping the gun on that one. I got a different question in mind. That's it. Mary, did you know? Um, and, uh, and we are going to answer that question, or we're going to give a part of, a partial answer to that question today. We're going to talk about some of the things that Mary probably knew, because with about, oh, 99% certainty, we know that Mary was present for the events that we're going to talk about today, and she heard what Zechariah had to say, and Mary was a clever girl. I think she probably understood a lot of what Zechariah had to say, which means that she did know quite a bit. So um, whether she knew everything that's mentioned in the song, I don't know, but she did know a bunch of stuff, and we're going to see that today. Um, so the part of the story we're looking at today is told in Luke chapter 1. So if you got your Bible, open to Luke chapter 1. If you got your phone, you can pull up uh, Luke chapter 1 on your Bible app. And we are going to be pretty much sticking right in that chapter most of the time um, today. Not much uh, flipping pages this time. So uh, have your Bible at Luke chapter 1. And in this section, the meaning and significance of the events of Christmas are prophesied by an old prophet priest. His name was Zechariah. And his son, who is born in this story, is the guy that comes to be known in the Bible as John the Baptist. Um, if he'd been on Facebook, this is what his profile picture would have looked like, but they didn't have Facebook back then. But he would have looked something like this. This is, uh, this is what Zechariah would have been like. And let me tell you a little bit about his story to let us know who our old poet, priest, prophet was. Zechariah was from a very long line of priests. In fact, he traced his ancestry all the way back to Moses' brother Aaron, who was the very first uh, Jewish priest. And uh, the Bible tells us that he and his wife Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's, that's quite a high praise. These were good people, both Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, they had faith in God, and they were living according to the teachings of the Bible. But Luke tells us that although they were very uh, old, they had never had children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. And now they were past the age when couples are able to have children and, uh, you know, infertility can be a difficult thing for people in any time and place, but it was especially difficult in this particular culture. And in the story, Elizabeth actually says that she felt that it was a disgrace for her to be childless. So here they are, a godly couple living according to the way of God, but there's kind of a hole in their lives where they wish that they had a child. And in the story, it tells us that the time came for Zechariah to have a special opportunity to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. 
Now, there were priests that lived all over Israel at this time, and they had their different duties in the different uh, places around the country, but the big temple in Jerusalem was the main place of worship for the Jews, and there were certain duties that priests would get to do in the temple where they would get to enter into parts of the temple that were blocked off from normal people to ever go in there, and even the priests could only go in there when they were doing these special, um, special ceremonies. And so, in order to get the chance to do the special ceremony, you're, you, they would draw lots to see who got the, the privilege of going in and doing these things. And Zechariah's uh, turn came up where he was able to go in and perform uh, the special thing of putting incense in the inner sanctuary of the temple where nobody else would be there. It would just be him and God going in to put incense out um, in the inner sanctuary of the temple. And while he's in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he and Elizabeth would have a son and that his son would be great in the eyes of the Lord. But Zechariah doubted the angel's word. He said, I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And uh, he's a little diplomatic there. You know, himself, he's no problem saying he's old. His wife's not old. She's just well along in years. But anyway, he's, he, he doesn't believe that this can happen. The angel is, must be mistaken or something. And God was not pleased that Zechariah doubted. And so as a consequence, he took away his voice, and he was unable to speak until his son was born, just as the angel had prophesied he would be. And it was only when Zechariah followed God's instructions and named his son John that he got his voice back. And after being unable to speak for most of a year, um, that's a long time to think about what you're going to say when you get to talk again, right? And so, um, so when he finally gets his voice back, uh, he offers this prophetic poem about God, about His Son, and about the salvation that God is bringing His people through the events of what we now call Christmas. And, and I'm pretty sure that Mary was there. If you read the story, you, you can follow that along. And, and uh, Mary was related to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and she was there visiting, and it looks like she was there for John's birth and would have heard all this stuff. So Mary knew this stuff that we're going to talk about now. So let's take a look at what God had to say through Zechariah. I'm uh, jumping in to verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. It says, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And so I want to stop right there for just a second. Uh, this is not just a wise old priest who knew his Bible and had walked with God for many years and had almost a year to think about what he was going to talk about, and now he's giving his wisdom. That would be something to listen to, but this is a lot more than that. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. That means that he was guided by the Holy Spirit to speak this message from God. And when, when the Bible talks about somebody being filled with the Spirit in order to prophesy, the result is that the words that the prophet speaks are just the same as if the voice of God came down out of the clouds and, and spoke this. This is a message directly from God 
that Zechariah is delivering for us here. So what does he say? He says, verse uh, 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He said through His holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So the great thing about poetry is that there is such great imagery and, uh, and eloquence in the poetry, but the problem with poetry is a lot of times it's not really easy to understand exactly what the poet has to say on a first reading. It takes a little more effort to, uh, to contemplate the poem and to try to figure out what the different imagery is trying to tell us and things. So, so we're going to have to uh, take a little time here to... Um, to understand this poem. It has some great imagery about God and raising up a horn of salvation and the rising sun shining on the shadow of death, but, but it's a little bit hard to, to, to understand at first. So, so let's, let's, let's take a look at it piece by piece and go through it here. He starts out by saying, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, that's a common enough phrase in the, in the Bible to say, praise be to God. Uh, but what does it really mean? Well, in one sense, it's just Zechariah saying, God is great, and I'm praising God. But in a public setting like this, it's more than that. It's Zechariah saying, hey, everybody, you should all be praising God. So he is encouraging all of us to uh, give praise to God. And so that's the first instruction that you and I are given here in this part of the Scripture. We are told to give praise to God for what it is that He is doing. And then the rest of the passage explains what it is that God is doing that is praiseworthy. What is it that uh, is happening here on this, uh, what we now know as Christmas, that is worth praising God about? And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're celebrating Christmas, right, which is a holiday that commemorates the events that Zechariah is a part of and that he's prophesying about here. But you know, you and I both know that it's easy for us to get distracted this time of year. Lots of stuff happening. There's lots of great traditions around Christmas, you know, going to the Nutcracker or, uh, you know, uh, putting up a tree, all the different things, gift buying and all that stuff. And it's easy for us to de-emphasize the fact that all the great holiday traditions are, are just a, a, a way of celebrating the real thing. And of course, you know, here we are in church, we all know that, that God is the reason for Christmas, and we know the story of Jesus' birth and all that, but still, 
it's good for us to be reminded that what we're doing as we're giving gifts to one another and doing all these things is we are praising God for the events of that first Christmas. So, what Zechariah is telling us here in this first line where he says, praise be to the Lord, he's saying, go out and celebrate Christmas. Have a great time. Have joy in your celebration and, and, uh, and make a big deal about it and rejoice. And here's why. He says, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. So, God has come to His people. So, one of the great things that we celebrate at Christmas is that God Himself came to us and became one of us. He's not a God who's off uh, at a distance managing things from afar. He came to earth and was born in the most humble circumstances, spent His early childhood as a political refugee in a foreign land, lived as a blue-collar working-class carpenter until He was 30 years old. And because at Christmas God came to His people and became a man and lived among us, we know that He really cares for us. And we know that He's able to sympathize with us fully in our struggles. So we celebrate that God has come to His people. But we also celebrate what He accomplished while He was here. He didn't just come just to, to sympathize. He came to do something. And in this first verse here, Zechariah summarizes what God is accomplishing with a key theological term. The term is that He has come to His people and redeemed us. And that idea of redeemed is a key idea in the Bible. The concept of redemption is that at one point we were gods, and then something happened and we were no longer His. And now um, He has to uh, pay the price to bring us back to Himself. He has to redeem us back. And the rest of the poem expands on how He has done that. It says uh, in the next verse, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Now, a horn of salvation, that's an interesting uh, image. Um, but it's one of those poetic images that needs a bit of explanation. The horn that you're supposed to think about here is not like a trumpet horn or something like that. The horn is the horn of a large animal, like an ox, right? So, uh, so you can see a picture of the oxen there. Now, what is the significance of their horns? It's a bit of a strange image for us because we're not used to large animals like this anymore. Um, but in Jewish imagery of the time, a horn was a well-known symbol of strength, the strength of the ox in that horn, it was, it was dangerous, it was powerful, it was strong. And so a horn is a symbol of that, uh, that strong uh, leader that God has raised up to lead His people, a leader with the strength to fight for His people and to win. And Zechariah says that God has given His people a horn of salvation, a strong leader who will bring salvation to his people. And this leader is said to be raised up in the house of God's servant David. And that's interesting that he says that he's coming from the house of David. A um, couple of reasons for that. But one thing is, um, 
This tells us that even though Zechariah is making this uh, prophecy and he's doing all this at the birth of his own son, John, um, who is going to be a great man and everything, but this prophecy can't be about John because John is not from the house of David. We just were talking about how Zechariah and Elizabeth also were descendants of Aaron, and uh, that means that they were from a different tribe in the, in the Jewish uh, system than the tribe of David. And so, um, John is not from the house of David. Zechariah is talking about somebody else. Um, he also says that he is this uh, raising up of a horn in the house or family of David was predicted by God's prophets long ago. And there's quite a lot of prophecies, actually, about a great leader who's going to come from the house of David. And he's referred to in the Bible as the Messiah, the Anointed One. One of those prophecies that was ancient even 2,000 years ago, and Zechariah referred to it here, is a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah had to say. He said, "'The days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land.'" In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So Zechariah is using a little bit of a different metaphor than what Jeremiah used here. Jeremiah talks about a branch. Uh, Zechariah talks about a horn, but they're referring to the same person. What they mean when he says, uh, what Zechariah, when he says God has done what he's promised through his prophets long ago, is that this prophecy from Jeremiah and lots of others like it are being fulfilled. God is bringing about the long promised salvation for his people. And there's another uh, lesson for us in that idea right there. Zechariah and his people had waited a long time for God to fulfill His promise to send the Messiah. But they had faith that God would do what He had promised to do, and God did it. And now we are in a similar situation. We are also waiting a long time for God to keep His promise. They waited a long time for Messiah to come the first time, and we're waiting a long time for Him to to come the second time. But one of the things that we learn from this story is that if God said He was going to do it, He's going to do it. Our God is a faithful God who does what He has promised to do. So don't let your faith in God's promises grow weak. Jesus will return and will set all things right. He will bring justice to the world and we will live with Him in an eternal kingdom. It was prophesied long ago, and it will happen. Next, Zechariah talks about the salvation that this strong leader is going to bring about. He calls it salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So what enemies are we talking about here that the Messiah is going to save us something? Um, so, if you know the historical background or you know some, some of it, it's about uh, Zechariah's time, you know that the, the nation of, of Israel at this time was under occupation by the Roman Empire, and, uh, and so they were a, uh, a foreign army was occupying their nation. And so 
you might think that Zechariah was thinking about the political enemies of the Jewish nation, which would be the, the Romans. Um, but if we look at the context here, a few lines down in verse 74, Zechariah tells us that the result of being rescued from our enemies is that it's going to enable God's people to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So whoever these enemies are, they are preventing people from serving God. And, uh, and that doesn't really fit the, uh, the political situation of the day, because even though I'm sure Roman occupation had many uh, downsides to it, um, religious freedom was actually guaranteed for the Jewish people. They were a privileged religion, in fact, in the Roman Empire and were given special uh, legal privileges to practice their religion. And so, so they were not being stopped from, from worshiping God by the Romans. So it's not the political uh, enemies that Zechariah is referring to here. And it's also not salvation from your personal enemies, like that guy at work or at school who's a real jerk to you and you really wish sometimes that God would come and save you from that guy. That's not what he's talking about. So we're not talking about your personal enemies. We're not talking about your political enemies. Um, the, the enemies that God actually saves us from are a much bigger deal than either of those things. That means that, like, if you could choose either to be saved from whatever political uh, problems you think you have or whatever personal enemies you think you have, if you could choose between those guys, those enemies being removed, or the ones that God actually does remove, you should always choose the ones that I'm about to tell you. Um, they are a much bigger deal than what these other problems might be. And the two great enemies that Jesus has saved us from are sin and death. See, because of our sin, we are guilty in God's sight. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin, that is the just result of sin, is death. But when God came to us and redeemed us and saved us from our enemies, He was victorious over sin and death. The Bible says He too shared in their humanity. In other words, Jesus came at Christmas. He shared in their humanity so that by His death He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who are all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That is the victory that Jesus has won for us over our enemies and those who hate us. We no longer need to have any fear of death and judgment we know, just like Jesus uh, died and rose from the grave, we too will rise from the grave to a, and live a new life with God forever. Now, in the next section, we have a typical poetic feature, which is repetition of some of the same ideas, but told with kind of different imagery. Um, this is the way poems often uh, do things. And so what we have here is... Uh, Verse 72, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. So now Zechariah is referring not to the promises about the, the, uh, 
that were made to David, but to even older promises that were made to the great uh, Jewish ancestor Abraham. And he especially mentions that oath that God made to Abraham, and which has the same idea of being saved from our enemies. But there's also an important new idea brought in at this point. He says, God's salvation is to be an act of showing mercy. And that's another key word to think about. God's act of coming to save us from sin and death is because of the mercy that He has on us. So what does that mean and why is it so important? Well, mercy is when a consequence or a punishment that someone deserves is not given to them. It's withheld. And the point is that we are in a situation where we deserve punishment for the mistakes that we've made. We are not worthy of the salvation that God gives us. So you know how Santa Claus keeps a list, right? Santa Claus has that list of uh, the, if you've done enough good stuff and you've, you've been, uh, your good outweighs your bad, then you're on the nice list, and Santa will bring you uh, nice presents for Christmas. But if your uh, bad things outweigh your good things, then you're on the naughty list, and Santa brings you a lump of coal. Um, sometimes we think that that's the way that God works, right? Uh, he's watching us. He's keeping a list of all the things that we're doing. And he's uh, keeping track of who's been good boys and girls and who's been bad boys and girls. And God weighs us in a scale. And if we're good enough, so if we've avoided the major sins and we've uh, gone to church and we've done some good things and, and maybe give some money to the poor, then God saves us from sin and death. And sin and death are defeated for us and we get to live with Him in heaven forever. Or, and then we think that, but if our moral performance is lacking, if we are too sinful, then God says to us, you're on the bad list, and you get what you deserve, and you're going to go and suffer for your sins. But that's not what the Bible teaches, right? Zechariah says that God's salvation is the fulfillment of of the promise of mercy that He made in His ancient covenants with His people. And by definition, mercy is undeserved. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, by our sins, we have earned and we deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And unlike the wage of sin, the gift of God is something that we do not deserve and we have not earned. It's a gift. Here's the way the Bible puts it in another place. It says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. What that means is that we do not need to have any fear that we are not good enough for God. Have we failed to do enough good or have we done too much bad to deserve God's salvation? Yes, we absolutely have done 
We, we have failed to do enough good, and we have done way too many bad things to deserve God's salvation. So it's a good thing that God doesn't care whether we deserve it. It's not, our, our, our salvation is not based on our moral performance. It is based on God's kindness and love and mercy. So Zechariah reminds us that this salvation from our enemies is the fulfillment of the promise of mercy that God has made, and then he gives uh, God's purpose for saving us. God's purpose is to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. God has saved us so that we can serve Him without fear. Why without fear? Because we no longer have to fear death, because He has beaten death for us. We no longer have to fear that we won't measure up to God's standard. We no longer have to fear anything. God already knows all our weaknesses, all of our failures. He already knows that we don't measure up, but He still loves us. And He saves us because of the mercy that He has promised to show us. Sin is the great enemy that prevents us from being able to serve God in holiness and righteousness. But because of the salvation that God has brought through the events of that first Christmas, we are able to escape from the consequences of our sin and be declared righteous in God's sight. So, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come to His people and has redeemed them. Celebrate our salvation. As we go through all the Christmas activities, let's be sure that we are praising God in it all. Now, at this point in Zechariah's prophecy, he changes gears a little bit, and he addresses this next section to his infant son, who were, I'm assuming that Zechariah knew that this would be written down and his son could read it later because his son is like a few hours old. He's not understanding anything. But anyway, Zechariah knew someday John will understand this. Here's what he says to John. He says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So through the prophetic influence of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah knows that his son is going to be a prophet and that he's going to have this uh, special role of preparing the way for the Messiah. And how would he prepare the way? By giving people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Now, John had a special place in history, right? As the, the forerunner of the Messiah, he was, uh, he was given a special role to getting people ready to respond to the ministry of Jesus. John wasn't going to save anybody, but he was going to give people the knowledge necessary for them to be saved by Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We are not in the same historical moment that John was. We are not John the Baptist. We've not been given that special role that he was given. We don't have the gift of prophecy like John did. But our job description is remarkably similar. For those of us who've been given the knowledge of the gospel and have experienced the salvation for our sins, we also are called to give people the knowledge of salvation that is available through the forgiveness of their sins. Christmas is a great 
reminder of that and a great opportunity for us to do this. It's a lot more natural for us around Christmas time to steer conversations in a spiritual direction. You know, a lot of times that's a, that's a, that can be quite a, a jarring thing and hard to do, but around Christmas time when you're already talking about, oh, how are you going to celebrate Christmas? Uh, uh, you can talk about your, your spiritual, uh, the spiritual meaning of Christmas and what it means to you and how you're going to do uh, things to do it, and you can steer things toward Jesus and talk about Jesus because everybody's talking about Christmas anyway. You know, we're not going to save anybody from their sins. Jesus has already done that work, right? Our job is to be like John the Baptist, prepare the way for him by giving people the knowledge of salvation. And it can be as simple as inviting people to our Christmas Eve service. We have these little cards. I have a sample one here. These little cards, we've got lots of these things. Really encourage you to grab one of these, grab two or three of these, take them and give them to somebody. They have all the information about when we're doing, when and where for Christmas Eve. Invite people to come to Christmas Eve service. And the great thing about a, uh, a, a, an invitation like that, because it's Christmas, it's a way of celebrating, we're going to do candlelight and have silent night and all that stuff, people will, um, will be much more likely to accept an invitation to a Christmas Eve service than just a regular church service. And when they come, they'll hear about spiritual things, and then that can lead into other spiritual conversations for you in the future. So I encourage you to pick up those cards Use them to invite people to our Christmas Eve service two weeks from today. In the final section of our passage this morning, we have another poetic description of the salvation that God brought when He came to His people and redeemed them. It says, uh, because of the tender mercy of our God, and um, that's another, inter- another addition to poetic... Uh, description here, right? Now, instead of just mercy, it's His tender mercy. Um, So, because of God's tender mercy, um, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And that tender mercy is, uh, you know, it's the mercy of a patient father with his children, right? It's, it's a mercy that is full of sympathy and compassion and concern for us. That's the kind of mercy that God has for us. And it's because of that mercy and by that mercy that God sends His Son on Christmas. And the word picture used here to describe Jesus in this part of the poem is one that, at least to me, is a bit more clear and appealing than the idea of calling him a horn. Here we have him referred to as the rising sun that will come to us from heaven. And um, the imagery here, uh, for, for Zechariah's people, it was crystal clear. For us, it's a little bit harder, and the reason it's a little bit harder is because of electricity. But see, when we get up in the morning, if it's still dark out, we just turn on a light, and then it's light in our in our environment, and when the sun comes up a little while later, and we barely even notice it because it's been light the whole time. But maybe you've been camping sometime or out on a hunting trip or a fishing trip or something, and you got up before the sun came up, and when you are out there in the dark and watch the sunrise, that is a different experience. And, you know, first you get just that little light on the horizon, 
and you can see the dawn coming, and then the sun starts to rise up, and you get those long shadows of everything for those first few minutes as the sun rises above the horizon. It's just a beautiful thing, and that's the image that this poem is giving us for the coming of Jesus, the rising of the sun. That's what we're supposed to be picturing to describe Jesus coming on that first Christmas. Jesus is sunrise, shining on people who live in the darkness of sin. It's sunrise on people who are always trying to measure up so that they're worthy of God's love. It's sunrise for those of us who live in the dark fear of death. Christmas is bringing sunrise, bringing us light. And that's, that's why we have the, these uh, Advent trees that we have here that we light up as we go. Or like on, on Thursdays, we have a wreath with the candles, the traditional Advent candles. Same symbolism of the coming of light with the uh, Christmas season. And, uh, and this light guides our feet into the path of peace. That is, Jesus reveals to us the way to live in peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? Well, most importantly, it's peace with God, because uh, without salvation, without Jesus, um, we, uh, our sins make us enemies of God. But once we have forgiveness of our sins, we can have peace with God. But also, because of God's tender mercy, um, we can have peace uh, with God, and that gives us peace, the ability to live in peace with other people. When we're at peace with God and we have that core peace in ourselves, we can also live in peace in all other areas of our lives. So, let's praise the Lord this Christmas season. For He has come to bring salvation and has conquered our greatest enemies and has revealed to us the path of peace. And as we praise Him, let us not forget that we have been given the role by God to spread the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins to prepare people to be saved by God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Christmas, for the, the things that You did on that first Christmas in sending Jesus to save us and redeem us. We thank You for Your mercy, which we did not deserve, but You gave us because of Your great love and compassion. We pray that we would always remember to... Celebrate with joy the great salvation that you've given. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.